Acts chapter 1, and my aim, my ambition this morning is to work our way through the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 1, which happens to be a kind of introduction, a preface or a prologue that the author carried about by the Spirit of God offers us as we're going to see Together, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and because this is the word of God, that you are the people of God, this is the Lord's day. Would you please stand, if you are able, to hear from the God who still speaks in his word. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Luke, the physician, writes as he is carried along by the Spirit of God these words. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands, through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Church family, the grass withers. The flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. I have been married to my beloved bride, Tana, for 19 years on January 3rd, a couple days away from our anniversary. For the first few years of our relationship, it was just the two of us. Enjoying one another, making it through the college years, working hard to survive in California, actually. Eventually, the Lord blessed us with the conception and birth of our firstborn, Madeline Grace. Not long after Madeline, we received Christopher Titus. And then, after a hiatus that lasted a few years, in came Micah Perry. Three, we are blessed with now. On the one hand, I thought about this this previous week. On the one hand, 
Everything changed when we began having children. Everything. I, I couldn't have imagined what it would be like having children. In fact, I faintly remember what it was like not to have children. It's difficult. There are memories there, but it's difficult to imagine life without children. On the other hand, however, I want you to consider this tension. On the other hand, the birth of children in our family has represented more of a development than something entirely new. It's a continuation. Not all couples are blessed with this. Couples can be blessed with many forms of this kind of development, continuation, and deepening. But for us, as the Lord granted to us three children, and I reflect on this, it's not as if everything now is new. There's some sense in which it's just a deepening of what was already present. Our family did not begin in the hospital room with the birth of our children. Our family actually began at the wedding ceremony. When Tana and I looked at one another before a congregation in Gatesville, Texas, at First Baptist Church in Gatesville, before our pastor, and vowed to one another with the words, I do. In this sense, our children are what I just suggested, a continuation, a deepening of what we already had received as a family. So, y'all get this. It's going to become, I think, relevant for us as we approach Acts. The arrival of our children brought our family both a newness and a deepening development with what was already being enjoyed, our family. This is comparable, I think, to what we find in the book of Acts. And we find this taking place throughout Acts. On the one hand, this book is the story of something new. Something that appears to be quite new from time to time, and namely the birth of, the inauguration of the new covenant church through the descent of the Holy Spirit. There will be various things we'll point out as we make our way through 28 chapters of the book of Acts. On the other hand, Acts really is the story of, of development, continuation, fulfillment, deepening of what was already the case for these followers of Jesus Christ who had experienced the ministry of Christ and the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promises to his people. Well, this morning, we are going to introduce this magnificent God-breathed book, which, by the way, we could say that about any book in the Bible. We could. I'm reminded of a friend of mine who every time he preached a book, he would say, this is my favorite book in all of scripture. And as a pastor who has the privilege and the stewardship of studying through books, I'm tempted to say that every time I start a new book. This really is a magnificent God-breathed work. And we're gonna look together at Acts chapter one, verses one through 11. And we're going to walk through this text, this introductory text by asking and answering two questions. Two simple questions this morning. First, we are going to ask and answer the question, what is Acts about? 
What is it about? What is this book about? And if you're taking notes, by the way, we will spend the vast majority of our time on this question. Just know that. If you have eight pages of notes, seven and a half of them will be devoted to this first question. What is Acts about? And we will give four answers to this question. Four answers or subpoints to the primary point, what is Acts about? And then secondly, we will conclude our time together this morning by briefly asking and answering a question that we're going to ask throughout the book of Acts in various ways and in various forms. And the question is this, why does it matter? Why does it matter? First, what is Acts about? And then so what? Why does it matter for us as followers of Jesus Christ here in the 21st century at First Baptist Powell? And uh, we'll draw some conclusions there and you'll see these throughout, I hope, throughout the book of Acts as we walk through this God-breathed text together in the many months ahead of us. So let's turn to our first and primary question for the morning. What is Acts about. And here's the first answer we're going to see in the text, if you're taking notes. First of all, what is Acts about? Acts is about the continued ministry of Christ. Emphasis here on continued. Acts is about the continued ministry of Jesus Christ. Now look at the text with me. Acts chapter 1, the verses 1 and 2. Where the Spirit of God communicates through Luke. And the first book, O Theophilus... I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, a bit of background here that appears in the text. Luke's name is never actually mentioned in this text or in any portion of Acts. Never mentioned. Which, which by the way, may be a demonstration that he's the human author. It is widely accepted that the human author of Acts is Luke the physician, an early disciple and companion of the Apostle Paul. Now we know as followers of Christ, and if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't consider yourself a Christian, you need to know this about Christians. We believe that the primary or fundamental author of every portion of scripture is God the Spirit. So Luke, when we talk about Luke being an author, we really mean Luke is an instrument in the hands of the Holy Spirit. But here, it is widespread and really widely accepted that Luke is the human author or the human instrument of the book of Acts. And identifying Luke as the author takes place, by the way, for inquiring minds, which, you know, all of you don't want to know this. I'm not going to give you the evidence. If you want the evidence, you can email me later and I'll send it to you if you like. We won't do that in the sermon, but but the way commentators do this and the way exegetes do this is uh, they look at what's called internal evidence and external evidence. They ask the question, what does the book itself tell us potentially about the author of the book, the human author? That's internal evidence. They also ask the question, what do other texts tell us about the potential human author of this book? That's external evidence. And the external evidence, by the way, includes extra biblical sources, that is, sources outside of Scripture. Sources, for example, found in the second century. Uh, Various sources like the Muratorian Fragment. Or um, Irenaeus of Lyon. I'll quote Irenaeus from time to time. One of my favorite theologians. Um, He's helpful on this point. If you want to know more about those details, email me, all two of you, okay? (laughs) I like those details. Other faithful followers of Jesus don't care. 
And that's okay. They know the Spirit of God authored this thing, and that's good enough. Um, but feel free to reach out, and we can share more about that. But it's, it's widely accepted on account of internal evidence and external evidence and the early church, the consensus we find in the early church that Luke, the physician, as he's known at one point in the New Testament, we're going to see that in just a second, Luke, the physician, Luke, the companion of Paul and the early disciple is the human author. Both the book of Acts, of the book of Acts and the gospel according to Luke. Now, Luke is mentioned in the New Testament a few, a few times, and I'm going to mention those to you. A few times, and uh, every one of these occasions in which we find Luke's name mentioned, we find it in Paul's writings. Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, for example. In Colossians 4, 14, Paul writes these words, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. So Luke is with Paul, doubtless, when he's writing Colossians. In Philemon 24, Paul mentions Luke as a fellow worker in the gospel and one who sends Philemon greetings. Again, someone who's with Paul, doubtless. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul is alone, almost, toward the end of his ministry and his life. And he writes, toward the conclusion of his ministry, these words, Luke alone is with me. Luke has stayed with me through it all. We never actually get a gospel written by the Apostle Paul. But many in the early church believed that the gospel according to Luke was a kind of gospel written through the lens of Paul. Because Luke was so impacted by the Apostle Paul. And apparently, as I mentioned a moment ago, apparently Luke authored Acts as volume two in relationship to the Gospel of Luke, which would have been volume one. You couldn't have, I won't say too much about these kinds of things, but they interest me. And I have a microphone. You couldn't have written both Luke and Acts on one papyrus scroll, it wouldn't have fit. These scrolls would have been about 35 to 40 feet in length. And uh, so Luke would have been written on one and Acts would have been written on another. Um, and, and, and Pastor Tim is thrilled with this, that I'm sharing this from the pulpit. Um, again, there are two of you out there that will love this. The rest of you, that's okay, bear with me. We won't stay here long. But the gospel according to Luke is volume one, one papyrus scroll. The gospel, the gospel, the Acts of the Apostles is volume two another papyrus scroll. And in fact, Luke intimates this in Acts chapter one, verse one. Notice how he begins. In the first book, in the first writing, or in the first word, the first document that I've written. And so apparently here, Luke demonstrates that he expects the book of Acts to be volume two. Luke chapter one, the gospel according to Luke, chapter one, verses one through four is even similar to the Acts of the Apostles. Luke chapter one, verses one through four reads these words, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative 
of the things that had been accomplished among us. And then verse two, just as those from who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things very closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. By the way, we don't know much about Theophilus other than that he's mentioned here in Acts 1 and then there in, in Luke 1. That's all we know. And he's referred to as most excellent Theophilus in Luke, which may mean he's high-ranking, perhaps he's a Roman official, but we can't be sure. And then verse 4 of Luke chapter 1, so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So these two works, the gospel according to Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, these two works are read historically together among Christians and among the churches, all the way back to the early church. Interestingly for us, as we're starting this book, the book of Acts, interestingly, if we assessed the size of works in the New Testament, according to words or page count, Luke wrote more of the New Testament than any other human author, including Paul. We tend to think of Paul as the primary human author of the New Testament. Actually, Luke wrote more. Now, Paul wrote more letters. uh, But Luke's letters, as it were, are longer. And this assumes, by the way, the Apostle Paul didn't write Hebrews, which some have thought he did. I do not. Luke addresses Acts and the Gospel of Luke, as I mentioned, to a man named Theophilus. You just need to take note of that. Um, Beloved of God is what the word means. And so some have translated Acts chapter one, verse one, in the first book, O loved one of God. That's what the name means. Probably a particular person, though, with a wonderful name. And... Notice now, and we're going to come full circle really to our first answer to the question after all this introductory matter in the first verse. Notice that Luke informs us that in his first book, you're looking at Acts 1.1, in his first book, he has written down all that Jesus, what? Began to do and teach. Now this is where we want to highlight something for just a moment. In the gospel according to Luke, Luke says he wrote down all that Jesus began to do and to teach. In other words, the gospel of Luke is about the beginning of Jesus' activities and teachings. Acts is about the continued ministry of Jesus after his resurrection and ascension. What's fascinating about Acts is in a few verses we're gonna see Jesus ascends back into heaven and, and, and the apostles are left and they're gazing up into heaven. And we're gonna get to this. It's a fascinating picture of what happens. And look, as he's carried along by the spirit of God, is attempting to describe this. And the assumption might be, well, Jesus has, has left, he's gone. And so his ministry has concluded. But in actuality, what we find is Luke is going to argue throughout the book of Acts that Jesus' ministry continues from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit through the church. That's massive. It's important to understand what's taking place in the Acts of the Apostles. In fact, there's one author, Alan Thompson, who's written a really helpful book summarizing Acts. 
and the biblical theology of Acts. Alan Thompson titled his book, and I love this, The Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus. That's what this book is really about. I mean, in some sense, we call it, notice, the Acts of the Apostles. And and that's not inaccurate. But fundamentally, the Apostles aren't the ones acting. They're instruments. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that's acting. And he's acting by the power of the Spirit, as we're going to see in just a moment, through the church, through the body of Christ. That's what Acts is all about. The continuation of the ministry of Jesus Christ. This reminded me this past week of Winston Churchill, who in 1942, November 10th, actually, 1942, which if you know much about your World War II history, this was a difficult time. And Winston Churchill, the then Prime Minister of Great Britain, famously quipped these words, this is not the end It's not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. I think this applies even to the book of Acts. That's what's taking place as as Luke closes his gospel and then opens up the book of Acts. Jesus' ministry is not stopping. It's continuing. So second, in answer to our question, what is Acts about? First of all, we've seen that Acts is about the continued ministry of Christ. Second, What is Acts about? Acts is about the present and future arrival of the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. Acts is about the present and future arrival of the kingdom of God. There's this tension in Acts. On the one hand, the kingdom of God has come. In fact, Jesus taught us this in the gospels. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How do we know that? Because the king is here. On the other hand, we find that throughout Acts, God's people are still waiting for the consummation of the kingdom. In fact, one of the questions the disciples offer Jesus in our text implies that there's some future sense, future fulfillment of the kingdom that has been inaugurated or brought about initially through the Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse three, where Luke writes these words, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Appearing to them during 40 days, so Jesus was raised from the dead and then he appeared to the disciples over a period of 40 days at various times in various ways in various locations to various people. What was he doing during this time? Luke tells us he was speaking about the kingdom of God. So he introduces us to this idea of the kingdom of God early on in the book of Acts. In fact, Acts will conclude. In Acts chapter 28, the apostle Paul is uh, under house arrest and, and he's teaching others about the kingdom freely. And that's how it concludes. And we'll get to that in some time. But Luke bookends the book of Acts with this concept of the kingdom of God. Now understand that this kingdom to which Luke refers is the kingdom that God promised throughout the Old Testament. And we don't have time to walk through many Old Testament passages, but let me give you a couple of passages. One quite early and then another a bit later. Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. So it's very early on this concept of the kingdom appears. It appears even earlier than Genesis 49, but this is one helpful text. And in Genesis 49, verse 10, we read concerning the tribe of Judah. 
the tribe from which Jesus would eventually come. These words, the scepter, which is a symbol for a king. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So very early on in Genesis chapter 49, there's this promise that someday there's going to be a king and a kingdom and that king and kingdom is going to surface out of the tribe of Judah. Second Samuel chapter seven is perhaps one of the central passages regarding the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. Second Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13, God promises David, King David, in this way, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that is when you die, when your ministry wraps up, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so there's this promise in 2 Samuel chapter seven that the Lord offers to David concerning one of his sons that God is going to establish his kingdom forever. Of course, this is fulfilled through the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the characteristics of this kingdom in the Old Testament is the fresh presence of the Holy Spirit. We'll get to Acts chapter two, which quotes Joel chapter two with reference to this fresh descent of the Spirit of God on God's people. But we also, we also observed this recently during Advent season. In Isaiah chapter 11, in Isaiah chapter 11, for those of you who are with us, you may recall this, we read about a coming king who would reign over God's kingdom forever and this coming king would be characterized by the presence of the Holy Spirit. This king would operate always empowered by the Holy Spirit. And you don't have to get far into Acts. I just mentioned Acts chapter two, but we're gonna see this in Acts chapter one before you find the fresh presence of the Spirit of God indicating that the kingdom of God is, on the one hand, present. It's here. It's here. On the other hand, and we said this a moment ago, on the other hand, while the kingdom of God has come, God's people are still waiting for the full arrival and fulfillment of the kingdom. Notice verse 6. A lot of discussion about these couple of verses. We won't get into much of that because it's speculation. But the question certainly implies a futuristic element to the kingdom. And Luke chooses, as he's carried along by the Spirit, to include it in Acts. The disciples ask Jesus in verse six this question. Lord, will you at this time restore the what? The kingdom to Israel. And then Jesus responds with tremendous ambiguity. Verse seven, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, Acts does represent a kind of correction to the disciples' thinking from time to time. We'll see that. And and many commentators emphasize that even here in these couple of verses. 
Um, look at them, they're muddle-headed. They're dense. They don't understand the kingdom has come. Well, on the one hand, that's true. On the other hand, I, I do think that the question itself, Luke including the question, and Jesus' answer implies a futuristic element to, to the kingdom. And in my opinion, a futuristic element that includes Israel. But that's for Romans 11 and another exposition. <laughs> so, I think this is consistent, by the way, with the rest of Acts and the New Testament. For example, Acts chapter 14, verse 22 Barnabas and Paul preached to the churches these words. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. Implying what? The kingdom is future. So we're gonna find this tension time and time again. On the one hand, the kingdom of God has come. It's a present reality. On the other hand, we're waiting for the final fulfillment of the kingdom. Christianity, by the way, is a religion both of fulfillment and anticipation. We are still people in waiting. We are people in waiting recognizing that we've been given so much, right? Alan mentioned, one of our elders mentioned a moment ago, the thanksgiving that ought to just overflow out of a recognition for what God has given to us in Christ Jesus. And we've received these elements of the kingdom. We have the spirit of God as we're gonna see in just a moment. We've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We've received the promise that Jesus Christ is going with us to the end of the earth and the end of the age. As we take the gospel, we can be confident that God is rescuing people from every nation, tribe, and tongue in fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and Genesis 22, the promise God gave to Abraham and his descendants. And on the other hand, we still get sick we still die. We still say goodbye to loved ones. In the words of one author, poet, in that sense, we can still say, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. We're still waiting for the consummation of the kingdom promised to us. So Acts is about the continued ministry of Christ first, Second, it's about the present and future arrival of the kingdom of God. Third, third, what is Acts about? Acts is about the empowering gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts is about the empowering gift of the Holy Spirit. Look with me at verses four and five. While staying with them, he ordered, that is Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father which he said, you heard from me, verse five, for John baptized you with water, that is John the Baptist or John the baptizer. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. While the Holy Spirit had been active, now this is a part of that tension with which we introduce this sermon. The tension on the one hand of Acts being something new and the tension on the other hand of Acts being a continuation and a development and a fulfillment of what was already the case. While the Holy Spirit had been active throughout the Old Testament, the presence of the Spirit would reach a higher pitch in Acts chapter two and following. 
there would be increased intensity. A fresh testimony to King Jesus. Jesus even says it this way to his apostles in the Gospel of John. He says, you know the Holy Spirit, for he has been with you, but he will be in you. That's a change. Different prepositions there in the Gospel of John. It's not as if the Holy Spirit was not active. He was active always. In fact, he's active in creation. Genesis 1 begins with this. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. But in the book of Acts, we find an increased and a higher pitch of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. One early church father wrote these words, John Chrysostom. He wrote these words in the fourth century. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are a history of what Christ did and said. That's actually what Luke tells us. And then he says, but Acts, Acts is a history of what the other comforter said and did. To emphasize, of course, the presence of the Spirit of God through the book of Acts. Luke refers to the Holy Spirit, notice, as the promise of the Father, or we could say the promise from the Father. In other words, throughout Scripture and even through the ministry of Christ, the Father had promised the presence of this Spirit who was already active but would someday come in fresh power and fulfillment. A new and greater activity of the Spirit of God. And Luke ends... And Acts begins, that is the gospel of Luke ends, and the book of Acts begins with Jesus instructing the disciples to wait for the fulfillment of this promise. Don't go anywhere. I know know I've commissioned you to the ends of the earth, but you need something first. I've called you to go but I have not yet empowered you to go. That's how Acts begins. They're waiting for the power they will receive when the Holy Spirit comes upon them and we're gonna spend a fair amount of time unpacking that power beginning in Acts 2 and carrying us throughout the rest of the book of Acts. But this leads us to a fourth answer to our first question. What is Acts about? What is Acts about? Fourth Acts is about the church boldly bearing witness to Jesus. Let me say that again. Acts is about the church boldly bearing witness to Jesus between his ascension and future return. So Acts is about the church boldly bearing witness to Jesus Christ in between this period of time, in between his ascension into heaven and his promised future return. Now we just observed that the Holy Spirit empowers the church through the book of Acts. But what does the Spirit empower the church to do? Look with me at verse eight. Acts chapter one, verse eight but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my, what? Witnesses. Witnesses. In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria 
and to the end of the earth. In fact, in some sense, this is an outline for the book of Acts. The book of Acts is really just a retelling and an unpacking, an exposition of this verse. That is the church receiving power and then serving as witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. And and by the way, Acts wraps up without a conclusion. There's no conclusion, not really. You'll forget I said this when we get there, so I can say this now. But Acts wraps up with Paul continue to teach about the kingdom, period. As if to imply that work continues to the present day. And that's gonna help us answer our second question in just a moment before we wrap up. But before we do that, let's keep unpacking this concept, namely that Acts is about the church boldly bearing witness to Jesus between his ascension and future return. The spirit empowers the church to declare the excellencies of Jesus Christ to others. That's what the spirit does. There's a great deal of discussion and debate surrounding the present work of the Holy Spirit. And look, we're gonna get to talk about some of those things throughout Acts. I can't wait. I love talking about issues concerning which Christians disagree. Here's why. If we do it well, charitably, humbly, prayerfully, and steeped in the word of God, if we do it well, we, we won't likely all agree at the conclusion of our discussion. 2,000 years of church history. <laughs> validates that conclusion. There will likely be diversity at the conclusion of this exposition of the book of Acts in First Baptist Powell. But what, what engaging in these difficult issues concerning which Christians disagree can do for us if done well by the power of the Spirit, ironically, not coincidentally, certainly, is help highlight what matters most. We'll talk about these issues about the gift of tongues, right? Not a hot topic at all in Baptist life and history. We'll talk about issues like the gift of miracles, things like a handkerchief being used to heal people. These kinds of things are happening in the book of Acts. And we'll talk about what we might expect even today as followers of Jesus Christ, among whom the same spirit is active and the same spirit is empowering. We'll talk about all those things. And at times, some of you will walk away and you'll think, yep, disagree with Pastor Perry on this one. And I'll actually say, amen, that's, that's, that's wonderful. As long as that disagreement serves to highlight what we agree on. Namely, that the Spirit of God empowers us to serve as witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ among all nations. That's what we're about. And that's what we see throughout the book of Acts. Now, look with me at verses 9, 10, and 11. 9, 10, and 11. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. As I was working through this in the Greek earlier this week, a cloud received him. Luke is just being carried along by the Spirit of God and 
doing his best. He's using human language to describe what is supernatural. It's certainly adequate because it's God's word. It's not always comprehensive. Only God has that. We couldn't even begin to understand all the facets of this. Verse 10. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, something we would all be doing probably if we were there. You know, I can't imagine being there and watching the Lord as he's been talking to us, right? And so he's been instructing us. In fact, Luke tells us he's been commanding us by the power of the Spirit of God. And then he tells us these things. And then all of a sudden, someone notices, wait a minute, his feet aren't on the ground. And by the way, the ancients responded in the same way moderns would respond. They didn't walk away thinking, yeah, we see people floating all the time. You know, Jesus was raised from the dead. What did they do? They doubted. They did the same thing we would do, right? So these aren't just muddle-headed ancients, dense ancients. They're humans like us. And they've learned that there are patterns in life. And one of those patterns is not that people float. Okay? So as, as they're watching the Lord Jesus and then noticing, of course, his feet aren't on the ground, I'm not sure all that happens at that point. I know what Luke tells us and what the Spirit of God reveals to us. What they didn't do is, after he went up and disappeared, what they didn't do is say, huh, and move on. In fact, the way the text reads, and if this were a Greek class, we would really do some work here. It's not a Greek class. It's not. If it were, we would. It's not. But the way the text reads is, they just sat there staring. And then they have to be interrupted at some point. How long were they staring? We have no idea. Was it 30 seconds? Was it 30 minutes? We don't know. But the way the text reads is it was an extended period of time. And then there are two, the text calls them men. Two people. Messengers from heaven, clothed in white, that ask a fascinating question. Why are you staring into heaven? I hope you have a sense of humor as you're reading God's word. I would be tempted to say, I think it's obvious. But the angels, of course, go on to explain. In verse 11, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, here's the point, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The Christian church has always believed and taught the death of Christ. The Christian church has always believed and taught the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. The Christian church has always believed and taught the ascension of Christ. This really is central to the gospel, integral to the gospel. We could keep going as the text keeps going. The Christian church has always believed and taught the return of Christ. 
He was raised from the dead bodily. He ascended bodily. He will return bodily. For example, the Nicene Creed, which is one of the many creeds of the early church, fourth century creed, is not articulating something new. In fact, it's articulating something that had been around for a few hundred years. The Nicene Creed reads these words concerning the ascension of Christ. Christ ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. What's the significance of the ascension? Why? Why does it matter to early Christians that we in fact believe, teach, and confess that the Jesus who died and was raised also ascended? Why did that matter to them? There were a number of reasons, not the least of which is heaven receiving the incarnate son was the father's way of demonstrating his approval. Christ indeed was victorious. As he came from heaven, so now heaven has received him back. But now, but now as the exalted incarnate Son of God. And this is why Christians have described this as sitting at the right hand of the Father. This was the place of honor. This is, this is the seat of authority. This was the throne on which Jesus would reign forever and ever. So the idea in the ascension is Jesus is received back by the Father into heaven and now that's where he sits reigning over heaven and earth. To be high and lifted up is, by the way, to be God and to be sovereign, and to be the ruler. Additionally, additionally, we could preach an entire sermon on the ascension. We're not doing that right now. This is just a bit of an aside, but definitely in the text. Additionally, it demonstrated Christ's ongoing priestly ministry. Christ had made sacrifice for sinners to rescue us, offering himself without blemish before God, dying on the cross in our place and for our sins. And now, now he sits at the right hand of the Father doing what? Making intercession, praying. A high priest did two activities, performed two activities. He made sacrifices for the sins of the people and he offered intercessions or prayers on behalf of the people. Christ, after having made perfect sacrifice, now makes perfect intercession for us. So all this is bound up in this concept of the ascension. I wonder, when we're sharing the gospel, how often we talk about the ascension. As I reflected on this this past week, I thought, I think it's, I think it's the element that I neglect when I share the gospel. But the early church wouldn't have it. <laughs> It wouldn't have us neglecting it. God's word wouldn't have us neglecting the ascension. So the message we share about Christ, boldly bearing witness to Christ, what's that message? That message includes the death of Jesus in our place and for our sins, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven and the promised future return of Christ. And it's this message that we offer to a world and exhort a world to repent and believe in Christ. So if you're here this morning and you don't yet know this Christ, 
If you haven't yet surrendered to Christ or given your allegiance to Jesus Christ, maybe, maybe your faith in Christ has never gone beyond intellectual assent. Believing that Jesus did these things, but never believing in Jesus. Entrusting yourself to Christ. Surrendering all things to Christ, which is much closer, by the way, to the concept of faith in Scripture. I exhort you this morning, dear friends, don't leave this place without embracing Jesus Christ, the risen and ascended Christ, the one who was received back into heaven because his work was sufficient for you, the one who now prays for his people until he returns bodily in the same way he ascended bodily. And if you'd like to know more about what it means to trust in Christ and serve Christ, or perhaps you have questions about Christ and about Christianity, then stay after the service for a few moments and let's talk. As you exit this room, you can take a left out there and go to that room on the right-hand side before you leave this building called Crossroads and we would love to visit with you. Come alongside of you and you alongside of us as we serve the risen and ascended Jesus Christ. So what is Acts about? I told you, the vast majority of the sermon will be one question. Acts is about the continued ministry of Christ, first. Second, Acts is about the present and future arrival of the kingdom, second. Third, Acts is about the empowering gift of the Holy Spirit. And then fourth, Acts is about the church boldly bearing witness to Christ in between his ascension and future return. We're gonna see all of this throughout Acts. We've done an injustice this morning, but we're gonna see all of these themes time and time again. The question with which we will conclude our time together is why does it matter? Why does it matter? A lot of introduction, which is what Luke does in Acts 1, 1 through 11. But why does it matter? If we understand Acts to be a record, God-inspired record of the acts of the risen and ascended Christ through the church, and I think we should, then the work of Acts will continue until the return of Christ. That is to say, the work of Acts continues right here at First Baptist Powell in the 21st century. That's why it matters. This is not a book about a God who once did something 2,000 years ago, though it indeed is. It's just not all that it is. This is a book about a God who began to do something through the death, resurrection, appearances, ascension, and promised future return of Christ, who began to do something and now continues to do that same thing through the ongoing body of Christ this side of resurrection. So this book matters. Let's think through our four answers to the question, what Acts is about. This book matters because Christ continues to minister among us and through us today. His ministry continues right here at First Baptist Powell and beyond us. We're privileged to be a part of it. We may not monopolize it. It matters because we have received the present kingdom of God and we are waiting for the future fulfillment of that kingdom. We, like the apostles in the book of Acts, exist in this 
era of tension. We have the kingdom and we're waiting for the kingdom. And so Acts really is about us. It matters because we are empowered by the same Holy Spirit we find in Acts. That's wonderful news. The same Spirit of God that empowered the church to boldly proclaim the gospel and bear witness to Christ in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth is the Spirit active among us and through us today. It matters because that Spirit empowers us to boldly witness to Jesus until he returns. So to summarize, to summarize this, Acts matters because it is the beginning of a story that now includes us here at First Baptist Powell. It's our story, and it will continue to be our story and the story of many churches until the Lord Jesus Christ returns in the same way he ascended. Samuel Stone has summarized this story that is the story of the work of Christ through the church until Jesus returns. He summarized it beautifully with these words. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She, that is the church, she is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride With his own blood, he bought her. And for her life, he died. Elect from every nation, yet one over all the earth. Her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food. And to one hope she presses with every grace endued. The church, and I love this stanza, the church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend. Why? To guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there'll be those that hate her and strive to see her fail against both foe and traitor, she ever shall prevail. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it has been a joy for me to begin our study in the book of Acts. I pray, Lord, that it will not simply be a study, but it will be a season by the power of your spirit and the work of of the risen and ascended Christ, a season for transformation of us as individuals and of us as one local church among many. Father, continue the work that you began in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ as recorded in Luke. Continue the work that you continued of the work of the risen and ascended Christ, which you recorded in Acts, and continue that same work among us, through us, and at times even in spite of us today. We pray all of these things with great 
anticipation for what you have in store. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.